Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Day after day after day. Gotta get up, gotta get out, gotta get home before the morning comes. What if I'm late? Gotta be day, gotta get home before the sun comes. Another candidate announces a run for president. It can feel like a time loop. A candidate announces, gets lots of attention. You go to sleep. The next morning, it repeats. Someone else announces, and we start all over again. Gotta get up, gotta get out, gotta get home before the morning comes. Today on Politics with Amy Walter, gaming out the 2020 field. But first, my conversation with the candidate, who isn't a household name. It's a mathematically necessary thing that uh, many, many people must have voted for Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Mike Pence, and me. Uh, it tells you there there is more to this uh, than the sorts of things that fit into tidy categories assessed by political observers. That's Pete Buttigieg, mayor of South Bend, Indiana, population 102,000. Back in January, Mayor Pete, as he's known at home, and let's face it, he has a hard last name to pronounce, launched an exploratory bid for president of the United States. Normally, a young, relatively unknown mayor of a small town wouldn't get much press coverage. But his announcement got lots of media attention, in part because of these characteristics. He might be on the younger side. He is a millennial. He was also deployed to Afghanistan. The youngest president ever elected and the first openly gay man to serve in that role. The first openly gay man. First openly gay candidate of a major party to run for the White House. Afternoon, how are you doing? Pete Buttigieg, mayor of South Bend, Indiana. When I sat down with Buttigieg, I was curious to find out what he thinks distinguishes him as a candidate. I think I distinguish myself as a millennial Midwestern mayor. You know, at a time when my party has struggled to connect with the industrial Midwest, that's where I'm from, the the so-called Rust Belt. At a time when I think we've sometimes looked too readily to Washington for leadership, uh, I'm a mayor. I have a a very different reality in terms of uh, uh, government at the city level, which I would argue is the level of American democracy that uh, is working best today. And I, I do have a, a millennial perspective, too, that is uh, that of belonging to the generation that's going to be on the receiving end of decisions being made today on everything from gun safety to climate change. The historic nature of a potential run for president is not lost on Buttigieg, but he also realizes he has to offer more to be a serious contender. Whatever's in your profile on paper maybe gets you a look. Uh, Then pretty quickly the conversation evolves to what it is you actually have to say and how you say it. And when you're a small fish swimming in a big pond, especially a pond filled with fish who have lots of star power and name recognition, well, you've got lots to prove. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. Part of the reason Buttigieg has been able not just to capture the media attention, but to keep it, is because he's incredibly articulate. He knows what he wants to say and how to say it. That includes how he positions himself in a primary where there's a growing divide over whether Democrats should put forward the candidate with the boldest, most aggressive agenda, or if they need to promote the candidate who's more pragmatic and incremental. Here's how Buttigieg sees it. 
earning Republican and independent support is important. I, I live in the Midwest. I would not have gotten reelected with 80% of the vote if I hadn't figured out ways to do that. But I'm not as convinced that the way to uh, the hearts of, of people who are in the middle or even on the right is ideological centrism. Uh, I, I know that that was the playbook that maybe served Democrats well in the 90s. But today, I think people want to know what you believe. They want to know your values, and they want to know that you will stick to those values, uh, even if that means embracing policy directions that uh, will be challenging and where uh, the devil is in the details, and it'll take a lot of work and maybe some adjustment along the way to make sure that it truly is the best policy. But uh, I don't think that voters are just lining everybody up on a left to right spectrum and then picking the one name that feels closest to them. I think they're looking for a combination of attributes, uh, experience, style, character, but uh, also values. And in our party, we've allowed the right to sort of dominate the argument about values while we were busy arguing about policies. The consequence was you wound up living in a conservative era where even Democrats were enacting policies that used to be considered very conservative. Being from Indiana is one thing, but you've also only run in an area that's not as say, culturally conservative as the rest of the state. So how can you talk to voters outside of those areas, convince people that you can win over those moderates or independents or Republican-leaning voters? South Bend tends to vote Democrat, but it does not tend to vote 80% Democrat. Uh, and uh, the county that I live in, which is ordinarily pretty reliably mm-hmm. Democratic, went pretty much 50-50 in 2016. Uh, and so I think it's very important to uh, speak in particular to these parts of the country, like mine, where people are absolutely capable of voting Democrat, but don't do that automatically. Uh, you know, the first time we did a poll uh, uh, during the middle of my first term as mayor, we found my favorability more or less identical among Democrats, Republicans, and independents. And again, I did not do that by pretending to be more conservative than I am and, and, and tricking conservative voters. I did that by explaining what we were going to do, focusing on results and where my values were different than the values of some others, at least getting to where they understood I came by those values honestly. Do you think that there's a difference in the way voters view you when they think of you as a municipal candidate or a legislative candidate versus how they see you as a presidential candidate? In other words, it seems to me once candidates rise up into the federal ranks, these issues about culture and identity with the party become much more important than when you are a candidate at that other level of office. Well, part of think what I think we've got to do is make national politics look more like the best of local politics instead of the other way around. You know, one advantage of, of operating at a local level uh, is that you are dealing in a much more reality-based environment. But we have confronted, in my job as mayor, some of the most difficult national issues from climate to uh, racial sensitivities around policing, to LGBT equality. I would argue that not only is all politics local, I would say all politics is local, especially national politics. The only reason any of these policy debates even matter is that they are local and they are personal for someone. That phrase of Tip O'Neill's, right, all politics is local, it just feels like, especially in these last, I don't know, five, 10 years, All politics has become nationalized. We did not have one candidate in the Senate in 2016 win in a state that their presidential nominee did not also carry. Can you really take this all politics is local thing up to a national level when we're as identified now and polarized now with parties than ever? Yeah, because two things. First of all, I don't think the polarization is symmetrical. I think that 
the broadest story over my lifetime is how the Republican Party moved to the right and the Democratic Party also moved to the right. Uh, that's changing now just in the last few years, but it's recent. The other thing, though, that I think is deeper is that uh, voters have never been less ideological. Uh, I know that there are some strong partisan and tribal patterns that we're picking up, but I think many of those are sort of self-fulfilling at a moment when the president of the United States does not even have an ideology, uh, at a time when things that used to be gospel for Republicans, like, uh, let's say, fiscal responsibility uh, or uh, personal character, are no longer a consideration in how they selected their nominee. And I think uh, the scrambling of our politics and our ideology uh, is something that uh, I can relate to just living in an environment where it's, it's a mathematically necessary thing that uh, many, many people must have voted for Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Mike Pence, and me. Uh, it tells you there there is more to this uh, than the sorts of things that fit into tidy categories assessed by uh, political observers. Do you think that is true then at the democratic level as well, that ideology is less important to voters than other things? And if that's true, what is it that Democratic primary voters are looking for if it's not simply who fits into what box? I think ideology matters, but so does uh, tone, so does style, so does messenger, so does emphasis. And as somebody who even uh, entering, contemplating entering a field with uh, maybe 20 people in it, I'm very much not like the others, and I'm conscious of all the different ways that people will stand out. I think at the end of the day, uh, the, the voters, uh, certainly the ones that I'm spending time with on the road, seem to be most interested in somebody who will express their values who will present a way to make good on those values, and who will represent a change from a, a whole framework that seems to have let us down, not just in one election, but really in the arc of uh, uh, the direction of our party and our politics for the last uh, many years. I was really struck by a quote you gave. This was in an interview you did during the 2018 election. You sat down with a Washington Post reporter and talking about 2020. And you said, I get the urge people have after Trump to say, look at the chaos and the exhaustion. Wouldn't it be better to go back to something more stable with someone we know? But there's no going back to a pre-Trump universe. We can't be saying the system will be fine again, just like it was, because that's not true. It wasn't fine. Not if we could careen into this kind of politics. I want to get you to sort of dig into that a little bit. Yes. Another way to put it is, what are we doing to address the conditions that made a presidency like this one even possible, the, the causes of which he represents a symptom, because this didn't just happen. There are deep problems in our democracy, and there are deep problems in our economy. And I'm very worried that Democrats will feel this temptation to say, Part A is something that's definitely true, which is, you know, this is exhausting. We can't go on like this. We got to we got to change from what's in the White House now and then go from there to a part B that I don't agree with that says, therefore, let us turn back the clock. And I just don't think there is ever an honest politics that revolves around the word again. And I think the dem democratic temptation to rewind into uh, the Obama years or the 90s is no more realistic than the conservative impulse to, uh, in many ways, rewind our society into the 1950s. There are a lot of people where I come from who were under no illusions about the character of this candidate who became president. But they walked in and they voted to burn the house down because they felt so let down by the system politically and economically that they wanted to send a message. So what is the bold agenda then of a Buttigieg administration? Well, first of all, I think we need to act fast on the condition of our democracy. We are slipping in international rankings of freedom and democracy. And 
I think any other issue that we care about, from gun violence to climate change, cannot be addressed as long as our democracy is distorted. That means uh, tackling some things we've been talking about now for a while, like money in politics and redistricting so that uh, we actually have voters choosing their politicians instead of the other way around. But it's also things that uh, get remarkably little discussion, uh, things like the question of D.C. statehood, why some U.S. citizens don't enjoy the same political representation as the rest of us. We could talk about political representation for Puerto Rico and other territories as well. And I think we've got to revisit the Electoral College, which twice in my short lifetime has overruled the American people and makes it to where most years somebody like me living in Indiana might as well be in Puerto Rico for all the influence that my vote has on presidential politics. I'm just going to throw out some phrases and get your reaction to them. Okay, phrases that seem to be thrown about in this campaign season already. And they're almost like a Rorschach test. People, candidates, voters, the media have different interpretations mm-hmm. of them. So I'd love to get your interpretation. The first one would be this phrase, identity politics. I think identity politics is generally a name uh, given to politics that raise questions uh, around uh, racial or other inequalities that uh, make us uncomfortable. Uh, I also think, uh, in in a way, we're living right now through peak white identity politics. And the real question is, how can identity be a source of solidarity that brings more Americans together? Do you see it as a phrase that is used negatively as a way to argue that Democrats are too obsessed with these issues and not, quote unquote, real issues like the economy or jobs or Social Security, whatever. It is often used that way. It's used to kind of wave away concerns about racial and social justice. But uh, it's also very ironic when it is used that way because a big part of the most recent expressions of the conservative project is using race in order to divide working and middle-class Americans against each other uh, so that we can continue to have an economic system that does not put uh, the everyday interests of Americans first. Medicare for all. Good idea. Uh, Clearly, the devil is in the details here, too. There's a lot of complexity to it. But um, it simply does not compute to me that most most people in in developed countries around the world enjoy universal health care and Americans should settle for less. That doesn't make any sense. There are some complexities in how to get there. My own view is that the way to get there is something I would call Medicare for all who want it. In other words, take a flavor of Medicare, make it available as a public option on the exchange, invite people to buy into it. And then if people like me are right that that's going to be a more efficient and more comprehensive coverage option than the corporate options, uh, then that will very quickly become a pathway to Medicare for all. But I absolutely think that's the direction we need to move because philosophically, I think healthcare needs to be regarded as a right. The Green New Deal. I think the Green New Deal gets two core things correct. Number one, climate change is an emergency whose destructive power is on par with something like a Great Depression or a world war. And we need to have a commensurate level of a national response to it. Um, The second thing I think it acknowledges is the economic power of doing something well to deal with that crisis in the same way that dealing with World War II helped grow our economy to end the Great Depression. But it shouldn't require a war in order to mount that kind of national effort. And the difference between something like this and something like World War II or the Great Depression is this time we see it coming. 
So shame on us if we don't do something. Now, the Green New Deal, candidly, is more in its current form a set of goals than it is a fully articulated plan. But again, I think first we need to win the battle of ideas and talk about why those goals are the right goals at a moment when whether you you know believe uh, certain things are possible or not possible in the last 10 years uh, or in the next 10 years, uh, you know the right time to do a lot of these things was yesterday. Uh, so the, the bottom line is we can't wait. Is part of the challenge, though, in in having these aspirational goals, whether it's Medicare for All or Green New Deal, is when you're talking about potentially disrupting systems that are here right now and dramatically disrupting them, that you also have to be able to take care of the people who are going to be impacted, potentially impacted negatively, in the same way that things like trade deals and other things that Overall, we're seen as good disruption economically. It made sense in the big picture way, but obviously had devastating impact on individuals. So can you really sell two big disruptive plans without acknowledging what the impact will be on a whole bunch of people that won't be positive? You know, one thing I learned very early on as mayor is that you need to be very honest about the consequences of the decisions you make. And the truth is, uh, there are times when the only way to make one part of our life better is to uh, accept a cost in another part of our life. We should be honest about that. Uh, and frankly, one of the reasons why people in my part of the country became so cynical about trade is that promises were made but not kept. Uh, promises were made that uh, the overall economy would grow by so much that no matter where you uh, sat in the economy, you'd come out better off. The first part happened. The economy did grow. Uh, the rising tide rose, but a lot of boats stayed right where they were. And that's why uh, there was a, a sense of anger about that that broken promise where we were. So mm. we got to be very smart about the promises we make. And we got to pay attention to the distributional consequences, the distribution of gain and the distribution of pain. Uh, if we're in, for example, uh, an environment fiscally where we simply cannot be the country we want to be, unless some people who have not been paying their fair share uh, are asked to do it from from now on. How often does President Trump get brought up? Often, but less often than you might think, which I also think is a good sign. Uh, you know, this is largely a debate about where our country will be when this presidency has come and gone. I always try to frame it in terms of what the world will look like when I get to the current age of the current president, which is the year 2054. And I think if we want to have a cohesive, coherent, powerful message, if we want to win not just the next election, but really begin winning uh, the battle of ideas for the next era, uh, then we have to make sure we're explaining ourselves in terms of a message that will make just as much sense in 2030 or 40 than it does 2020. And I think the more, look, when he says, says something false, it must be corrected. When he does something wrong, it must be confronted. But uh, fundamentally, I don't think it's actually about him. Do you sense that that's what voters are are feeling too, right? That this is more than just about Donald Trump, but this is really sort of this inflection point for this country about which road we take yeah, I mean, forward. there's definitely an urge and an itch, especially in our party, to deal with this president and, and deal with the implications of this presidency. But uh, I think most people sense that there's something bigger at stake. Again, what are the conditions where a presidency like this could could even have become possible? And ironically, many of those conditions that led to the rise of Donald Trump are things that it was actually Democrats talking about the most before, the extent to which our politics is nakedly rigged by things like redistricting, the extent to which uh, our economy just isn't working, especially uh, for a lot of people in my part of the country, even when the top line numbers are looking good. Um, those are the things that are going to decide uh, what 
politics from any candidate uh, is going to look like for the era to come. And I think uh, consciously or subconsciously, I think we're all wrangling with that right now. Yeah, it's interesting because I do sense that, again, from Democratic voters I speak with, that push and pull, right? They do want, they do see this moment that we're in as transformational, this idea that we are talking about taking this country in two very different directions. At the same time, there's a very short-term focus I hear from them on, look, we have to beat Donald Trump. That is my number one priority. That's what these voters are saying to me. And I'm not going to fall in love with the candidate. I just want to find the candidate who can prove to me they can beat Donald Trump. Yeah, I think that's there. I want to make sure that doesn't become self-defeating, though. Many times Mm -hmm. that we have uh, settled a question in favor of electability, we've wound up having somebody who was neither uh, the best representative of our values nor able to be elected. Uh, It turns out that even voters who don't quite agree with you uh, want, above all, to know that you believe what you believe for a good reason and that you'll stick by it. And I think that, you know, we're at a moment that there's a risk of psyching ourselves out, of thinking that either in some way we've got to emulate this president in order to beat him uh, or that we have to uh, deny our own values in order to win. And the irony of it is, uh, as a general rule on most of our values, the American people are uh, right where our our side of the aisle is. Uh, If anything, uh, the center of gravity of the American people may be to the left of uh, uh, of many elected Democrats. I want you to weigh in a little bit on foreign policy. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, go back to the 2008 election where the Iraq war was front and center, and especially in the Democratic primary where you stood on the Iraq war was very important. Now here we are all these years later, not that many years later, but and uh, we as a country are still involved in a in Iraq, in Afghanistan, obviously we're now in Syria. What do we do now as a country? Because it seems to me we've had we've had a Democratic president who said we're going to get out of these places. We now have a Republican president who says we're going to get out of these places. And yet, one, we don't. And number two, should we? we I'm not sure America has a foreign policy. Uh, and I'm not sure there's been much clarity in the foreign policy debate ever since the neoconservative moment uh, around the beginning of the Iraq war. Part of what's driving that is that the American, the domestic politics around foreign policy has been unstable. You know, uh, I remember in 2002, Democrats basically lying and pretending that they supported the Iraq war. And 14 years later, by 2016, you saw Republicans lying and saying that they had been against it. And uh, so I think one thing it tells you is that we are ill-served to base our foreign policy on the short-term American domestic political pressures. We can't go on with endless war. You could be old enough to enlist right now and not have even been alive when 9-11 happened. We have people all around the world on an authorization for the use of military force that was passed to deal with 9-11 because Congress has uh, laid its war powers to the side. And as somebody who served in that war for what we were told was its tail end uh, back in 2014, uh, I'm very conscious to what we're asking when we're asking uh, young men and women to go overseas and be deployed into a combat zone. Now, when it comes to Afghanistan, I think the reality is we're leaving. It's, It's no longer a question of should we, we're leaving. And the only real question is, are we going to do it well or are we going to do it poorly? Doing it poorly would mean things like we've seen now, a president surprising his own military leaders with tweets, 
a peace process that does not actually engage the Afghan government, which would seem to be pretty important for making sure that there is a, 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 a some sustainable peace over there. Uh, I think a, a good departure means one that is realistic and honest, that we are not overnight going to uh, turn Afghanistan into a functioning Western-style democracy, nor do we is it our responsibility to do that, um, but that makes sure that we have set the table for uh, enough of a lasting peace that uh, there will not once again be an attack on the American homeland uh, that is the consequence of a failed state in Afghanistan. But do you think that's realistic that the U.S. does not need a military presence in Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria that we can actually take our really our footprint out of there and hope basically that things stabilize on their own? Well, there's going to have to be more to it than hope. And candidly, there will have to be, as there is, any place that American lives are at stake, wherever it is in the world, there has to be at the very least uh, a robust intelligence and, and, if necessary, special operations presence. But that does not mean that we should tolerate the low standard for the commitment of uh, large-scale uh, involvement of American troops that was set uh, during the Bush administration. And I'm especially concerned to see one of the alumni of the Iraq disaster, the current national security advisor, throwing around suggestions that we would commit troops to deal with a problem in Venezuela that, however disturbing, is not one that meets core American interests when it comes to the threshold we ought to have for the use of force. When you were serving overseas, did you get a sense from people you were serving with that there was the sense of morale fatigue? Uh, Were they questioning whether what they were doing was actually working? You know, most of the men and women I served with are are very mission-oriented. They, uh, even if they are people who care a lot about policy, and and I felt the same way too. Uh, When we're out there, you just do your job the best that you can. But there's no question that it puts pressure on your morale, especially if it's unclear uh, what exactly your elected chain of command is asking of you. And I write about this a little bit in uh, in the book, in Shortest Way Home, about some of the conversations I had while we were downrange uh, with uh, folks that I was serving with who were asking, okay, how... Uh, how are we supposed to feel about this when a lot of people at home don't even seem to recognize that this conflict is still going on? Okay, two other quick questions. Number one, the thing South Bend, for many people, is most most famous for is the university there, Notre Dame. As someone who's not a huge Notre Dame fan, sorry, Uh-oh. Uh, does this mean that like you have to cheer for them all the time? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. I grew up on that. I grew up on Notre I Dame know, football that's as soon as I was old enough to go there with my dad. So no matter who they play... You cheer for Notre Dame. Yeah, the only time I feel slightly conflicted is when uh, uh, when they play Navy, but I, I still come down for the Irish. I suppose if in some fantasy world Harvard and Notre Dame developed a football rivalry, that would <laughs> that would tug at my loyalties a little bit, but I don't think that's going to be a problem. Yeah, the good news is that really doesn't need to happen. No. Um, how did you end up, though, given the role that Notre Dame plays in sort of South Bend lore, was that a consideration for you? Did were, did you grow up thinking, okay, I'm probably going to go to Notre Dame? You know, I hung around campus a lot as a kid because my parents worked there. But I took on board the message that so many people, uh, even if it's never said explicitly, this message that you receive when you're growing up in uh, so many communities that are rural or, in our case, industrial. And the message was success means getting out. You should, when you're old enough, leave South Bend. 
And that's what I did, only to discover the further away I got that uh, that I was actually from somewhere that home mattered to me more than more than I thought it did, and and start finding my way back to Indiana. But it took a while for me to realize all that. The other um, interesting factoid about you, of the many interesting factoids about you, is that you wrote a winning profile and courage award profile of someone who you happen to be now running against <laughs> Senator Bernie Sanders in 2000. Tell me what that essay was about, why you picked him for a profile in courage. So yeah, it was a high school essay contest. It was a national contest sponsored by the JFK Library. And, and you're supposed to find people who were an example of the kind of courage that JFK described in, in his famous book. I, I wrote about Bernie Sanders, because, uh, who was then a pretty obscure Vermont congressman, because I was so impressed that he was willing to just say what he was for, even if it was politically toxic. I mean, uh, much more so than, than now, 20 years later, the word socialist could just be a kill switch on an idea or on a career. You could shut somebody down if you could credibly call them socialist. And yet he just applied the word to himself and, and said what he was for. And then, interestingly, was actually pretty good at, in certain ways at, at working with, uh, with Republicans, uh, just because he was free of some of the partisan orthodoxies in Washington. So I found him a fascinating figure to watch. And at a moment when it seemed like conviction was fading away from from our politics, it, it seemed refreshing, no matter whether you agreed with him or not, it seemed really refreshing to, to note that somebody, uh, especially somebody from the left, which was really struggling to do this, would just come out and say what they believed. So do you think maybe he, the senator uses quotes from that uh, in ads <laughs> against you in 2020. You know, uh, if you go back and read the essay, I, it was pretty well written for a kid, but you can definitely tell uh, uh, that uh, that it was written by an eager high schooler. So I don't know that, that those turns of phrase will, will be used again much. Uh, look, I still uh, really uh, admire uh, many things about him, as I do uh, many of the people in this 2020 conversation. But I am not like the others, and uh, I have a somewhat different message, and I, I think I represent a very different messenger. Pete Buttigieg, thank you so much for coming and talking with me. Thank you. So I wanted to get a sense of how voters in the early states are responding to the various messengers, as Pete Buttigieg calls them. I caught up with a couple of my favorite political reporters who've been hitting the trail with the campaigns. My name is Annie Linsky, and I'm a political reporter with The Washington Post. My name is Juana Summers, and I'm a political reporter with The Associated Press. We started our conversation with the week's biggest 2020 campaign news, the official entrance of Senator Bernie Sanders into the race. Hi, I'm Bernie Sanders. I'm running for president. And I'm asking you today to be part of an unprecedented grassroots campaign of one million active volunteers in every state in our country. They are excited to see Senator Sanders get back in, but voters are also really excited that they have a whole lot of options. I remember explicitly talking to a couple of folks who said that they think it's a good thing that there are so many Democrats running for president and that they'll get to see the kind of debate of ideas that they don't feel the party had in 2016 when really it was a race between uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. And Annie, you, I remember first meeting you when you were at the Boston Globe. So you've spent a lot of time in New England. And with Senator Elizabeth Warren, there was a new poll out in New Hampshire the other day that put her in fourth place. I know these are early polls. I know to not put a whole lot of stock in them. But for the next door neighbor to be at 9%, that was surprising to me. Is that surprising to you? 
Yeah, it is. I mean, I think that Elizabeth Warren, and I've been out with her you know, several times, she's getting crowds. She's getting pretty good crowds. But there was a level of raw excitement about her in 2015 and 2016 as people were trying to recruit her into the race that is not as strong as it, as it was back then. And you really see it. Um, New Hampshire's a great place to look for that because you know there was a reasonable apparatus of a group called Run Warren Run that was trying to recruit her into the race in 15. A lot of those people disappointed that Warren decided to pass on the race instead went into Bernie's camp. And I think now they have, you know, their pick, right? (laughs) And are they going to stick with Bernie or are they going to look to Elizabeth Warren, who's also from a neighboring state? You know, I'm very eager to see how how that is playing, how that dynamic is playing itself out, how those people who were really initially quite excited about Elizabeth Warren then got on the Bernie bandwagon, whether they're just staying with Bernie or whether they, they are really willing to look at her or look at some of the other candidates. And I think it was in your Twitter feed that I saw pictures of a line snaking around for a while to get in to see Senator Kamala Harris in South Carolina. I know you were there. What can you tell us about how voters in South Carolina see the candidates and specifically why so many of them lined up uh, in February to see a candidate? Harris is kind of a known commodity, right? She spent time there campaigning in the past. She's a known figure, and she's someone who excites a lot of voters there, particularly in the state where um, African-American voters will or make up a large share of the electorate. In fact, the only state in the early kind of voting nexus where that's the case. So she's got incredibly diverse events. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to Black women at these events about what it meant for them to see someone who looked like them running in the state for president. And there was a lot of people who were really excited at the possibility and the potential not just for Harris, but to have a field that is historically diverse with um, not just racial and ethnic diversity, but includes a half dozen women. So it is very early. And most of the people I talk to, they haven't made up their minds. They say they're trying to kick the tires and see who all will get into the race. Notable standouts like former Vice President Joe Biden, who haven't quite yet gotten in. But they're excited that that process is beginning. And how was she received on her first trip to New Hampshire? Wasn't this the very first time she's literally been to New Hampshire? People were really excited about her. You mentioned the lines in South Carolina, but I was with her at a church in Portsmouth down on the New Hampshire coast, and it was snowing outside. And when you walk up, there were hundreds of people outside in this church courtyard who were waiting for her to come out and speak because they actually, the event um, reached capacity and the fire marshal said they couldn't let any more in. So she comes out in the snow and she gives this speech saying, you know, it's cold out here. It's beautiful for this California woman. I'm here to tell you that I'm going to spend a lot of time here and I'm going to play hard here. She points out in that speech that the first question she got from the press upon getting to New Hampshire is whether or not she actually planned to campaign here. And she said repeatedly that she does and she will compete and she'll be back often. And one thing I've picked up in polling and also talking to Democratic voters is a sense that they are more pragmatic maybe than I've seen them before, that they are prioritizing somebody who can beat Trump over somebody who fits in line with them ideologically. And I'm wondering if you're actually hearing that when you talk to voters in these early states, or is that something that maybe is not as much of a prevailing attitude as we think it is? I think almost every single voter that I've talked to makes that point. Like, we just want to beat Trump. I don't remember that sentiment in, in, um, in 2016 at all. I mean, this time it just is 
you know, this absolute intense enthusiasm. And I think that's kind of why you're seeing some of the crowds you're seeing so early is just people are just so excited to get this process going. Annie and I are both at this event, but I just think back to that Columbia, South Carolina town hall that Kamala Harris did, where she got asked by a voter who got really emotional. She's a grandmother saying, you know, she's really terrified about the world that she could leave behind to her kids and her grandkids and that the country can't take four more years of President Donald Trump in the Oval Office and asked uh Senator Harris specifically about what makes her stand out and can she actually defeat Donald Trump, which is Democrats and goal this time around. And Harris came back with a forceful argument saying that this moment calls for someone who knows how to fight and someone who intends to win. Well, haven't you been with uh, spend some time with Cory Booker as well? Uh, Yeah, I dropped in on a Cory Booker event actually at an arcade in Manchester. I just think that there's a contrast of really night and day between how he's campaigning and how Kamala Harris is campaigning. The event I attended with Cory Booker was a lot smaller and he probably had maybe maybe 100 people. It wasn't a huge event, but I was really struck by watching him campaign. He stayed for an hour after, as he I'm told he does in all his events, you know, shake hands to talk to voters one-on-one, stayed afterwards and played actually arcade games with some folks who had hung out until the end of the event. So just a really interesting contrast in styles of how these two candidates are approaching a really independent state. There was a lot of focus after the 2016 election about the need for Democrats to reassemble the so-called Obama coalition. They needed to get younger people out to vote, voters of color. Are you seeing those kinds of voters show up in these early state town halls or events? It's still really early. Um, I know we've been talking a lot about New Hampshire and South Carolina, but I was also in Iowa with New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand when she announced her campaign. And I remember we went to this town hall in a brewery in Des Moines, and it was absolutely packed. A ton of young folks. Iowa is not obviously the most diverse state out there, but certainly a lot more people of color in those events. Senator Harris's events over the weekend in South Carolina in particular seem to reflect the type of voters that Democrats say they need to bring back into the fold that they lost some of in 2016. I personally was struck by the number of black women who came out for her, Um, many of them wearing trust black women's shirts, um, strong showings from the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, which Harris is a member of. What'll be very interesting to me, I guess, is the only candidates that I have been out with on the road have been either women or uh, candidates of color. I'm really curious to see if some of the white male candidates who are either jumping into this race or looking at jumping into it can excite a different swath of voters and much the same way that we're seeing early with these women and candidates of color. I think that that's an extremely good point. I mean, I've only, you know, reflecting back on it, I've only been out with candidates who are women or or, or candidates who are are either uh, Black or Hispanic. I've been to a number of Warren events where I do really feel like if I closed my eyes, I'd be back in 2016 at a Clinton event. You know, it's a very similar demographic of kind of older white women who are being drawn to her. And then when I've been at some events with Harris, the crowds are a little more diverse, but not markedly, markedly so. Um, at, at least that was my impression in in Colombia. For both of you, and I'm thinking about the early states you've been to, was there any pining from the voters that you talked to 
for a Joe Biden candidacy? Yes, definitely. And one of the things about Biden that's that I found quite interesting is it's it seems to he's his appeal seems to cross racial lines. You know, I'll talk to people you know, and and gender lines. Whenever I ask the question, you know, who else are you interested in? What other candidates would you like to see? People always mention Biden. Who knows how long that would last and whether he will get in there into the race, but I have really been struck by just the sort of appeal that he seems to have that cross some of these boundaries. Amy Linsky is covering the 2020 campaign for The Washington Post, and Juana Summers is reporting on 2020 for the Associated Press. All right, so time for my takeaway. The 2020 Democratic candidate field is huge and likely to get bigger. Right now, Mayor Pete Buttigieg isn't getting all that much attention, which makes sense. He's 37, he's from a mid-sized city, he's not a billionaire, but he's also the kind of candidate that can make an impression in 2020, especially in one of these early Democratic debates. I can see him putting in a strong performance, leaving some viewers saying, hey, who's that guy? And potentially giving him a chance to get noticed by voters who, right now, are only shopping for name brands. But I also think Democratic voters are going to be more pragmatic than ever this year. Love will have to take a backseat to winning. That's it. You've reached the end of this episode. But wait, we have a second one in your feed this week. My talk with Democrat Stacey Abrams. We talk about her advocacy of voting rights, her take on the internal debate within the Democratic Party on identity politics, and her potential run for the Senate next year. Check it out. And hey, while you're listening to these podcasts, give us a rating and a review. And extra points for originality, like this reviewer, H. MacMac, who says of our show, quote, my emotional self is calmed as reason, perspective, and facts balance the Twitterverse of outrage. Well, thank you, H. MacMac. So go get that second podcast. And if you've already listened, I mean, you can do it again. I'll see you soon. This is Amy Walter. Gotta get up, gotta get out, gotta get home before the morning.